Please stand for the reading of the word. I'll be reading from Daniel 8, 13 and 14. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to that certain one who was speaking, how long will the vision be concerning the daily sacrifices and the transgression of desolation, the giving of both the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, for 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. The word of God. You may be seated. You and I would not be here in the sanctuary today if it were not for these two verses. Now, if this is the first time you're hearing these verses, let me give you a little backstory. In 1816, a farmer from New York named William Miller was 34 years old, and he started studying his Bible, reading it verse by verse. When he got to the book of Daniel and saw the prophecies there shared in that book, he came to the conclusion that Jesus would return around 1843. Now, he was afraid. He wasn't sure. Did he understand correctly? Had he misread? He didn't want to mislead anyone. And so he sat on this conviction for a while. But when he turned 50, it had become so compelling that he could not but go out and preach. And so he started sharing this message, and this message moved people, and they started believing this message that Jesus was coming. This is one of the charts that they would use to show people this 2,300 days that equal years, and when it started, and that it was going to end in 1843. Now, at the beginning, William Miller had been very hesitant to set any kind of actual dates. But in January of 1843, he believed that Jesus would come back sometime between March of that year and March of 1844, based on the Jewish calendar year. When Jesus didn't come by March of 1844, the Millerites were already disappointed. Then, a preacher named S.S. Snow rode into camp meeting one day and predicted that Daniel's prophecy would end on the Jewish Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement was one of the Jewish festivals described in the Bible. And the Jewish Day of Atonement that year in 1844 was October 22. So on that day, October 22, believers across the country looked up into the sky expecting to see Jesus at any minute. The Millerites had left crops unharvested. They'd closed their shops. They'd quit their jobs. And when October 22 came to an end, uneventfully, they were bitterly disappointed. In the Adventist movement, we, we tend to call this day the great disappointment. Hiram Edson, describing that day, wrote, it seemed like the loss of all earthly friends could have been no comparison. We wept and wept till the day dawned. This same Millerite, Hiram Edson, met with friends the next day to pray. They had a prayer meeting in a barn, praying for God to show up to try to help them understand their great disappointment. Crossing his cornfield, back from this prayer meeting in the barn, to avoid his teasing neighbors, he stopped 
going through the cornfield, he, he describes seeing heavens open, and instead of Jesus coming to earth on the Day of Atonement, he saw, quote, that he had a work to perform in the most holy before coming to this earth. Now, if this all see, sounds like jargon to you, let me again give you a little bit of backstory. The book of Exodus describes a sanctuary that Moses builds in the wilderness. And this sanctuary had a courtyard, and it had a tent in the middle, and the tent had two rooms. There was the courtyard was where the animal sacrifices were made. The tent had two rooms. The first room was the holy place where the priests would go every day and pray and perform acts of uh, service for the people. And then once a year, the high priest would go into the most holy place on the Day of Atonement to symbolically cleanse the sanctuary of all the sins that through the blood had been placed there all year long. So early Adventists, based on this, this uh, picture that Edson had, and based on their study of scripture, they concluded that the heavenly sanctuary needed to be cleansed of all the sins that had been accumulated by Jesus' blood, just like the earthly ones. And they concluded that this is then what Jesus has been doing in heaven since 1844. In 1847, Joseph Bates, we met him last week. He was that sea captain that helped us understand about the Sabbath. Joseph Bates wrote a paper that connected this heavenly day of atonement or cleansing of the sanctuary with a judgment, a pre-advent judgment, a judgment that happens in heaven before the second coming that would determine who would be part of the saved and who would be part of the lost. For early Adventists, this was good news. This was good news. God had not misled them. God had not abandoned them. Jesus was doing something important for them in heaven, hallelujah, right before he returned. This was good news, and they went to share it with everyone, with all the Millerites that had been disappointed, and eventually with more and more people until the whole world. For me, as a teenager growing up in Michigan, in the Adventist church, 150 years later, this sanctuary message did not always sound like good news. I heard that there were books, lots of books in heaven, and in these books, angels were writing down every single thing that I did wrong. It was all there in those books. Some of us have some big books. <laughs> Any day, my name could come up. God was taking his time, but any day, it could be my name that came up. And if I had forgotten to confess a sin, that sin would not be blotted out by the blood of Jesus. You know what's gonna be blotted out instead? My name from the Lamb's Book of Life. I wouldn't get to go to heaven. Didn't sound like very good news to me. If Friends, if by God's grace, I confessed all my sins and they were all covered, I still wasn't sure if I was gonna go to heaven. Why is that? Well, some were teaching at this time that this heavenly cleansing of the sanctuary was supposed to correspond to a cleansing of my internal sanctuary, my heart, so that all the sins would be being blotted out in Jesus' name and that eventually I would be, quote, safe to save 
In other words, I would no longer be sinning. I would be part of a last generation on earth that would prove to all the universe that humans could stop sinning and that humans could be safe to save and it would really be okay that humans would be let into heaven. I was understood from some that when this happened was when Jesus would come back and Jesus was waiting for all of our hearts to be cleansed of all this sin so that he could come back, so that he could show the universe that there could be some people that would be safe to save, safe to let into the kingdom of heaven. So I still wasn't sure. I still remember asking my youth pastor about the close of probation, the close of probation. At that time, when Jesus start, stops this work of judgment in heaven, at that time, when I wouldn't have an intercessor in heaven because Jesus has to come back so he wouldn't be in there, what would happen? I remember asking him, I remember where I was when I asked him, would Jesus stop being my intercessor? Would I have to be perfect on my own? And if I messed up in those moments, then could I not go to heaven? I don't remember what the youth pastor said. Pastor Ben, you youth pastors have a very important work, you know? <laughs> I am sure he tried to reassure me and say, no, you're, you're safe with Jesus, amen? I don't remember what he said, but I remember the question, I remember the fear, and I remember the feeling that I ultimately would be on my own. In this series, we're looking at the distinctive teachings of Adventism and asking how they help us be well. Today, our focus is on the sanctuary. With all the confusion and angst around this teaching, some of us may be tempted to throw it out. But let's look again. Let's look again at Daniel chapter eight and verse 14. Earlier I read it in the New King James Version, which is closest to the version that Miller would have preached it in. But I'm gonna read it right now in the New Revised Standard Version. And you have many different versions. You can read it in different versions. And there are other ways to translate that word cleansed. In addition to cleanse, the Hebrew word can be translated restored to its rightful state. For 2,300 evenings and mornings, and the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. Restoration implies taking something that's been neglected or mistreated or even friends loved to pieces and paying careful attention to it to bring out its beauty. We have an incredibly, uh, incredibly amazing volunteer team at the Wellness Warehouse. And if you haven't been to the Wellness Warehouse, you can see in the take note when it's open and I encourage you to go and look because they have some amazing things there at the Wellness Warehouse. And one of the things that they do is they take furniture that uh, you don't want anymore and they make it look beautiful. I want you to see this one. I took a picture of this one. It says, let all that you do be done in love. Look how beautiful that is. To take something that was old and restore it and make it beautiful, something that you wanna go and buy and pay for and take home. Restoration, bringing back the beauty of what was made. So, where is the beauty in the sanctuary? 
I'd like to offer three beautiful realities that we see about God in the sanctuary. First, God is with us. God is with us. Friends, this is the whole purpose that the sanctuary was set up in the wilderness in the very beginning of Exodus 25 and verse 8. God said, have them make me a sanctuary so that I may dwell among them. God is with us. When John describes Jesus coming, he draws on the same language. John 1 verse 14 says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word dwelt could literally be translated pitched his tent. The ancient sanctuary was meant to be a physical reminder where people in the camp could say, hey, God is with us. His tent's right there. His home's right there. And that sanctuary was meant to point forward to Jesus where God would come in the flesh and move into the neighborhood. Now, recently, the pastoral team were very excited, very excited when Pastor Elizabeth had an opportunity to move into the neighborhood. She's, she's right here. I won't tell you her, her apartment number um, because I don't know if she wants you all over for lunch today. Um, but she's right here. We were so excited. Yay, it worked out. You got to move into the neighborhood. You're so close. And guess what? The other day I was driving from my house in Loma Linda and I felt a little sad. Pastor Libis moved out of my neighborhood. But I'm glad that she's here at the church. That's, that's much better. But what an amazing feeling it is. In the message paraphrase, in John 1, verse 14, it says, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood, pitched his tent with us. God is with us. The sanctuary reminds us that God is with us. When the book of Hebrews talks about Jesus as the high priest, use the analogy of the high priest in the heavenly sanctuary, it says, in Hebrews 7, verse 25, he always lives to make intercession for them. He always lives to be our high priest. He always lives to make this connection between us and God, to make this intercession, to strengthen this relationship. Always, 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 God is always with us. The sanctuary reminds us that God is with us. We can be well because we're never alone. We never have to do it on our own, amen? Second, God is for us. God is for us. Last week, I had the privilege of leading the discussion at our Kinship Sabbath School, um, which is led by our LGBT plus community and allies. And I thought, well, the Sabbath school lesson, the quarterly, is on the sanctuary. And I'm preaching on the sanctuary next week, so why don't we talk about the sanctuary? So I shared seven words with, with the group there and asked them, what words do you think of when you think of particular things? So you can do this in your minds when I share a word. Let me ask you in your mind, when I say the word priest, what comes to mind? Now, when I did this at Sabbath school last week, there were a lot of positive words like spiritual leader, representative, interceding, blessing, messenger, but there were also negative words like bias and dictator. Here's the thing about analogies in the Bible. When we use an analogy, like saying that Jesus is a priest, 
a priest, a person that facilitates this relationship between human and divine. When we say Jesus is a priest, sometimes our negative experiences with religious leaders or people that take on the name of Christ, because we believe in the priesthood of all believers, we are all priests, when we have negative experiences with religious people who have attempted to stand in the place of God, dictate their perspectives, their preferences, are saying you have to do something in order to be proved by God or approved by us. When we have negative experiences of priests, sometimes we then transfer that up in our analogy. So when you think of Jesus as a priest, perhaps that leaves you with some questions about, well, God, doesn't God himself love us? Doesn't God, and what does that mean that, that Jesus is a priest? And perhaps another analogy from a different world is helpful. So the priest is an analogy from the religious world, and the advocate or the defense attorney is an analogy from the legal world. Again, sanctuary courtroom. So, 1 John verse 2, verse 1 says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Judgment. A picture of judgment. What do you think when you hear the word judgment? Perhaps like those at Sabbath school, some, some of you first think of pain and hurt or harsh condemnation, shame, fearful, ignorance. Our experiences of human judgment can shade our view of divine judgment. Daniel 7, we see an ancient one take the throne, presiding over a courtroom scene with books open. Side note, I hope God has upgraded to digital records and gone paperless. Because again, that is a lot of trees. On a serious note, the imagery of books remind us that this is an analogy of what God is doing in heaven. This is a way of us trying to use our human experience to understand what God is up to. And so what is God up to? Daniel 7 verse 21 says, I was watching and the same horn was making war against the saints and prevailing against them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was made in favor of the saints of the Most High. And the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. The passage that Adventists have used for, for 150 years to talk about the pre-Advent judgment, somehow some of us missed that this judgment is in favor of God's people. And this judgment is against the religious political power that would seek to persecute God's people and stand in the place of God. Notice in the New Testament, Jesus is described as both the defense attorney and the judge. When we hear Ancient of Days, we assume that that is um, our idea of God the Father, right? John 8, sorry, John 5 verse 22 says, for the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. So, talk about an activist judge. This would not fly in a court of law here. Jesus said, hey, the judge is mine, and by the way, 
I'm your defense attorney too. The sanctuary with these images of judgment, with Jesus as our priest, Jesus as our defense attorney, Jesus as our judge, the sanctuary reminds us that God is for us. We can be well because guess what? Our guilt, our shame are never enough to stop God from loving us. We can be well because those who would accuse us or persecute us will not have free reign forever. God is for us. Third, the sanctuary reminds us that God is ahead of us. God is with us. God is for us. God is ahead of us. Like the religious leaders of Jesus' day, it's easy for us to fall into the trap of trying to define who's in and who's out. In an article um, for Spectrum magazine called Sanctuary, our very own Dr. Kendra Holoviak-Valentine, who teaches um, New Testament across the street, points out that all four Gospels include what's often referred to as Jesus cleansing the temple. It's this strange scene, in many ways, of Jesus driving out buyers and sellers and turning over tables of money changers. And so here's a little background. Imagine this experience. You picked your best animal, and you were bringing it to sacrifice, to offer to God, and you came a long way, and you kept it well, and it doesn't have any problems with it. It's perfect in your, in your book. You take it to the temple, and a priest examines it and says, uh, 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 this will not do. No, no. You need to buy one of our animals that are really perfect to make a sacrifice. And so you say, okay, so I have my animal. Um, now I need to buy a different animal. So you go to buy the animal, and then the seller says, uh, 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 you can't use that dirty money here. That's regular money. You need temple money. Sorry, you have to go over there, go, go over there, go to the money changers, and go exchange your money for temple money. And not so sure on the exchange rates, but you'll, you'll, you'll manage. How many of you exchange money at an airport, et cetera, et cetera? So people are getting ripped off twice. First, their animals are not good enough, and then their money's not good enough. And in Kendra's words, Quote, it was a scam. Everyone knew it, and it made Jesus mad. And if it weren't bad enough, the location of this marketplace was in the court of the Gentiles. This is where people who were not Jewish were supposed to be able to come and worship God. And instead of them worshiping, there was all this stuff going on with buying and selling animals and the money changers and all that. And Jesus quotes from Isaiah 56. In that moment where he challenges what's happening, he says, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all people. A house of prayer for all people. I'm grateful that these were the words that were written above the sanctuary. I told you I grew up in Michigan, and this was my home church, the Pioneer Memorial Church. I love Pioneer, and it's hard to tell in the picture, but above that archway, it says, a house of prayer for all people. That's straight from Isaiah 56, straight from these words of Jesus at the cleansing of the, the temple. Kendra writes about these words from Isaiah 56. Isaiah 56 has been called scripture's most inclusive picture 
of the sanctuary. Eunuchs, who according to Deuteronomy would definitely not be allowed into the sanctuary, are invited in. Now, we don't use the word eunuch today, but they would have been part of the LGBT plus community. Eunuchs are invited in. Outcasts are welcomed. The sick and the injured and the hurting are healed. Foreigners are mentioned repeatedly. For Isaiah, the sanctuary is not a place to be safe from the world, but it is a place to bring the world. Too often, we're concerned about who ought to be kept out of the sanctuary while God is concerned about who needs to get in. God is ahead of us. God is ahead of us, and we are slow to follow and slow to respond. When you Google the word sanctuary, the first definition that comes up is a place of refuge and safety. A place of refuge and safety. In the 1980s, here's a contemporary example of the need for sanctuary. In the 1980s, the United States was disproportionately denying political asylum for people fleeing civil war in El Salvador and Guatemala. I was shocked when I heard the statistics. People at that time from El Salvador were being approved at 2% of applicants and Guatemalans were being approved at 1% when people of other nationalities uh, trying to get political asylum were approved at 31%. In January 1982, St. John's Presbyterian Church in Berkeley was asked to sponsor a Salvadorian couple and their baby son who had fled military attack. Five pastors met together and one asked a question, why don't our congregations declare sanctuary for those fleeing repression in Central America? And so they did, they made a sanctuary covenant and the sanctuary movement was born. It's estimated today that 59% of the country's population live in jurisdictions that have declared sanctuary status where local authorities um, decline to help the federal government enforce federal immigration law. Now, some people may be worried, well, are documented immigrants safe to save, as it were? There are stories of people being hurt, crimes committed by those who are undocumented. And yet, and yet, studies show that crimes committed by immigrants, both uh, with papers and without papers, are much lower than the general population. Studies on the relationship between sanctuary status and crime have found that sanctuary policies either have no effect on crime or that sanctuary cities have lower crime rates and stronger economies than comparable non-sanctuary cities. In this slide, this shows um, how crime compares in the state of California to other states and we're down there with Illinois based on population. Over 2,500 years ago, Isaiah envisioned that the sanctuary would be a safe place for outcasts and foreigners, a safe place. God is ahead of us. God is ahead of us. My own uncle teaches theology across the street. I'm Dr. John Webster. He's a theologian. And I said, please, can you send me some things you've been working on on the sanctuary? And I appreciated his help. There was uh, something I would like to share that he said. 
said, quote, God calls us to practice sanctuary. We do this by making the church a proleptic, anticipatory, provisional sanctuary for exiles from all forms of bondage, particularly from religious imperialism. Religious imperialism, what is that? That's basically when you believe that you can say who's in and who's out with God. Religious imperialism. So how do we practice sanctuary? When our baby boy was born, we chose to name him Desmond. This is Desmond. Um, he is almost 10 months old now. And when we were thinking about what to name him, we thought of some Desmonds that stood true to their convictions on three different continents and that, I believe, practiced sanctuary. Many of you may have heard of Desmond Tutu, um, who received the Nobel Peace Prize for his anti-apartheid work in South Africa. Desmond Tutu, amazing gentleman, man of faith. He died at 90 years old. He led the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa. This was a court-like body that invited victims and perpetrators to come and share the truth about what happened in the days of apartheid and discrimination and provide sanctuary. This court became a sanctuary because it was used not for prosecution, but for healing. Many of you may have heard of Desmond Doss. Desmond Doss was from the United States and he lived during World War II and refused to carry a gun because he believed that the Ten Commandments called him not to murder, even in the case of war. He was a conscientious objector. You may have seen his story in the movie Hacksaw Ridge or in the Conscientious Objector documentary. Um, on May 4, 1945, he helped rescue 75 wounded men, including Japanese soldiers, the people that had been firing at him. He helped rescue them by lowering them down a cliff and treating their wounds, providing, practicing sanctuary. How many of you have heard of Desmond Doss? I mean, sorry, Desmond Doss. How many of you have heard of Desmond Ford? Some of you, a few of you lived through the days. Desmond Ford was an Adventist the theology professor in Australia between 1961 to 1977. From his time in Australia, he went to Pacific Union Church to teach, and in 1979, he gave a presentation on, quote, the investigative judgment, where he questioned some of the church's traditional understandings. He was given a six-month leave to write his conclusions, and he wrote a document, a 991-page document called Daniel 8.14, The Day of Atonement, and the Investigative Judgment. In August of 1980, over 100 Adventist scholars came together at Glacier View Ranch in Colorado to consider his ideas and the biblical understanding of the sanctuary. The group, from their time together, approved a consensus statement on the sanctuary to which, friends, Desmond Ford agreed. But then, another document with a 10-point critique of his position created by a side committee not brought to a vote, not given in written form, presented only verbally, that was what was used to ask Ford to affirm this or have his teaching credentials removed. He refused. When asked in 2015 what he saw as his most important life work, he said, 
Righteousness by faith in the New Testament always refers to justification only, though inevitably such results in a life of holiness or sanctification. When one understands this, there is immediate peace and assurance, the peace and assurance that brought the Protestant Reformation alive. He said, that was what I was trying to say. That was my most important work. What I was wanting us to understand as a church, because he remained a faithful member of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, though were there many that tried to vote him out, he remained a member of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Basically, what he was trying to say was that our salvation is not based on anything that we do, but it's based on what God has done for us. Pastor Smuts Van Royen, in a recent article about Ford, asserted he exemplified the very best of the institution that rejected him. Ford died on March 11, 2019, shortly after turning 90. It's amazing, all three of these men, uh, Desmond Doss lived to 87, and Desmond Tutu and Desmond Ford both died at the age of 90. On March 30, the Avondale College Church community celebrated his life in a memorial service. And in, in her article, Dr. Kendra Holoviak Valentine described what happened. The service was planned to be held in the Avondale College Campus Church. So imagine we're a campus church. We were gonna have a service for someone that had been a teacher here some decades ago. Two days before the service, two days before the service, division officers revoked the use of the sanctuary for his memorial service. The event planners were forced to move it to a lecture hall at a university nearby. There was no organ, no grand piano, but the voices of nearly 800 people that attended that memorial service singing Amazing Grace and It Is Well With My Soul transformed that hall into a sanctuary. When Dr. Holoviak Valentine concludes her article, she shares Ford's final prayer of the last sermon he preached at the age of 89, a couple months before he died. He prayed, grant us, Lord, the sweet assurance that we may rejoice whatever happens, knowing that it is not our hold on Jesus, but his hold on us that saves us today and forever. Amen. How sad that a man wanting to lift up the sanctuary, or in, in Dr. Holbeck Valentine's words, to reinterpret it in ways that are in harmony with the gospel, was denied a service in the church sanctuary, even in death. Now, I don't know what those division lasers were facing and, and grace to them. They must have been under immense pressure. But how sad that he was not allowed to be in the sanctuary. But how beautiful that 800 other people became a sanctuary that welcomed him back in. Sanctuary reminds us that God is ahead of us. Friends, we can be well when we welcome all. Just like we saw the baptism, beautiful baptism that, that happened here. And we say, we, you are welcome here. The sanctuary reminds us that we can be well when we welcome all. Friends, when you think of the sanctuary, 
When you think of what unique things we can share with the world, the Christian world and the rest of the world, when you think about the sanctuary, I, I pray that you will remember these three things. I pray that you will remember that God is ahead of us all. I pray that you remember that God is for us all. And I pray that you remember that God is with us all. This is the sanctuary message, friends, that needs restoration. This is the sanctuary message that needs practice. And this is the sanctuary message that I hope this Desmond will find beautiful. Amen.